Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, June 15th. Father's Day is just three days away. So here's some unsolicited fatherly advice. Don't steal top secret government documents, show them to people, and then refuse to give the documents back when you're caught. You could be indicted just like one of our former presidents. You know, I think all my kids knew that by the time they were six, stealing is wrong. Uh, One thing they didn't know when they were six was the value of primary care. Value and primary care are two of our favorite topics here on the Roundup, and that's what we're going to talk about today, CMS's new Making Care Primary Value-Based Care Model. To tell us whether the Making Care Primary or MCP model has legs are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I'm in Nashville for the first of its kind conference between private equity investors and health systems that's being sponsored and hosted by Kane Brothers. You know, it's going to take a village for these health systems to platform customer experience in meaningful ways. PE is here to help ostensibly. So let's see how it goes. Good luck. Hope you come away with lots of good advice. That's great. Thank you. Julie, how are you? I am in Florida, actually, at my daughter's volleyball national tournament, where our friends from Advent Health are all over the place at the medical booth. Exciting to see. And I got a spin through Medicare, carting my mom around to some doctor's appointments earlier this week. So, you know, it's, it's been a big healthcare week. Wow. Wow. Nationals, huh? That's, that's great. So yeah. uh, good luck. Thank you. Now, before we talk about the new primary care model, let's talk about right and wrong. (laughs) There's a broad subject for you. Uh, Dave, any funny lessons in stealing from your youth that stick with you today? Well, I'm going to flip the script a bit and discuss the first time I remember somebody stealing from me. Believe it or not, it's actually more embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. When I was seven, I had a massive haul at Halloween. And me being me, decided I shouldn't eat all the candy at once. So I hid it underneath my bed and, you know, ate it a few pieces a week and, you know, was kind of working down my stash. And then someday in February, you know, I come from a big family. So my my two brothers and sister all came out with lollipops in their mouths. And I said, oh, could I have one? Oh, yeah. And they went and they got it. And I realized later on that they had found my stash and raided it. There was no candy left. And I guess the lesson I learned, Dave, is that sharing is caring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is so funny. I, I'll tell you sometime a, a good story about a similar experience I had in college that we won't record. Uh, but thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Julie, when did you learn that uh, stealing is wrong and uh, funny stories only? Yeah, well, I don't really have any funny stealing stories or many stealing stories, maybe any. But my story is about when I was in first grade and I learned that you shouldn't steal one from one's natural habitat when you know, I grew up in Florida, so lizards are abundant. And I thought that I'd, I'd enjoy one as a pet. So I kept one in a shoebox and I fed it some grass, which it apparently didn't like. And my mother finally convinced me to let the lizard go after like three days. And the lizard bit me. I was so <laughs> mad. <laughs> so, you know, you shouldn't steal one from one's habitat. Oh, that is really funny. I love that. 
Now, the first thing I remember stealing was golf tees. I was a caddy, maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And me and my buddy stole a few golf tees out of a golfer's bag during a round of golf. And we thought we were so cool, you know, very sneaky. And, of course, we couldn't wait to tell our friends. And then we realized that they gave away golf tees at the country club by the hundreds, if not by the thousands, everywhere you look. So <laughs> not so special. <laughs> not so special, right? I think uh, Fort Knox is safe for now anyways. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this new primary care model unveiled by CMS. Like I said earlier, it's called Making Care Primary, or MCP. It's a 10 and a half year demo that kicks off next year on July 1st in eight states. It has three domains that primary care practices work through and three tracks, with each track offering an escalated payment mechanism. The three domains or goals are care management with a focus on chronic disease like diabetes and high blood pressure, care integration with a focus on behavioral health screening and care coordination, and community connection with a focus on connecting patients with community support and service organizations. The three payment tracks are track one, fee-for-service with additional financial support to build the infrastructure for value-based care, track two, half fee-for-service, half prospective population-based or capitated payments to implement advanced primary care, and track three, 100% capitated payments to optimize care or care management and integration in partnerships or community connections. And of course, there'll be a lot of required reporting of performance metrics in each domain and along each track. Dave, what's your gut reaction to the new demo from a policy perspective? Is this a step in the right direction toward health and away from health care? And do you think it'll work? Ugh. My gut reaction is that the Biden administration's motto in health care reform is make no big plans. They cause too much political turmoil. This is a big yawn as far as I'm concerned. The MCP initiative is right up there with the administration's small ball moves on health equity. They're well-meaning, I suppose, but they won't move the needle and iota in terms of improving care outcomes. Eight states, 10 years, excluding ACOs, that actually could compromise care coordination. I mean, the goals are good, care management, care integration, community connection, but don't we already know how to do that? You know, I really don't want to waste any more of my precious time discussing the program specifics. I'm that unimpressed. So, Dave, here's what we already know for sure from enhanced primary care companies like Iora and ChenMed. They reduce medical loss ratios by 40% and improve health status for all manner of individuals in their programs. Their members love the services. The challenge has been that we don't pay enough to these enhanced PCPs to enable them to provide the level of care necessary to achieve the savings levels and the improvements in health status. Here's my counter proposal for the Biden administration. Just run it in one state. I will call it UP4C. That stands for Universal Primary, Prenatal, Postnatal, and Palliative Care. Get rid of the diagnostic and treatment codes, pay a fair salary to everyone who participates in delivering that type of care, make the services absolutely free for all comers in clinic settings, 
require participants to complete advanced care directives, monitor outcomes rigorously, and guess what? The results will be astonishing. We'll save money, we'll have healthier kids, we'll have better nutrition for the community, we'll have better end-of-life decision-makings, we'll have lower maternal mortality and morbidity. Overall, communities will be healthier. We don't need a 10-year program to figure this out. We already know it. So here's my new slogan for the Biden administration. If Cuba can do it, why not the U.S.? UP4C, baby. Let's go do it. <laughs> Dave's demo in one state. I love it. Yeah, that is complicated as it has to be. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any questions for Dave? Well, <laughs> let me see how I can ask this in a way that's productive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's June 2033. We're all a decade older and we're almost through this demo. So do you think we're still talking about moving to value-based care? Or do you think this demo has actually pushed us over the edge? And obviously private health plans and others as well that were there. In other words, is, could this be the tipping point? Well, I don't think MCP is the tipping point in any way whatsoever, Julie. But I do believe in market-driven reform and these new models that are emerging to completely reconfigure demand management outside in rather than inside out. It's not hard for me to envision a CVS in 2033 that has 30 to 40 million members surrounded by really great enhanced primary care with easily available clinics, great technology, hospital at home when you need it, really astute guidance from tech and human beings when you need it. So what's the world look like then? Because of advances in diagnostics, preventive care is now 25% of total healthcare expenditure, you know, up from 3% today. There's universal coverage. It's done in a pluralistic way. Everybody's a member somewhere. Much better buying, earlier diagnosis and proactive intervention, as I, I was talking about with better prevention. Healthcare spending is only 15% of GDP, not 20 like the government just said was going to happen. Fee-for-service and ASO contracts are a thing of the past. AI bots make life easier and better and much more personalized for us all. UP4C is celebrated throughout the land. And MCP is this wildly popular app that stands for my car payment. So that's what I think is going to happen. <laughs> That is excellent. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> All right, Julie, it's your turn. What's your gut reaction to the new demo? From a market innovation perspective, how do you think this will affect new primary care and direct primary care models that are popping up all across the country? And do you think it'll work? Well, I'm certainly not going to be as entertaining as Dave, but I tried to really look at this in, you know, why why are they doing this? And I'm kind of with two minds. On one hand, I view this as a total hedge against the new primary care models that are skimming commercialized off the top and will be part of the U4PMC or whatever Dave's acronym is. And, you know, this is a bit of a desperate move in many ways to save the rest of everybody else, keep the independents independent like so many of the regional blues are trying to do. 
This is CMS making sure that Medicare and Medicaid recipients have some sort of primary care infrastructure to support them. And you can even tell by the people who are excluded or the organizations that are excluded from this program that they feel like some of those organizations are already taken care of. And it's the rest of everybody else who they need to make sure comes into you know the next century. So there's the hedge feeling. On the other hand, I want to view it quite positively as the much-needed push to value-based care, leveraging all the learnings that they've talked about in the private models that are, you know, dabbling pretty deeply across so many populations. ChenMed, Landmark, Oak Street, Apri. You know, there's been a lot to learn on how to manage care and CMS. I would love to think is infusing these learnings into kind of the mom and pop FQHC tribal health care practices. And I don't know that I stand cleanly on one side or the other, but I want to be Pollyanna here. And here's why. Efforts like this can be great to actually scale innovation for innovators that are delivering these sorts of capabilities in larger organizations today, in health systems today. So all these tracks and domains are going to need much better analytical tools to stratify populations, predictive analytics that will leverage AI to more proactively identify potential issues, certainly more robust patient communication tools and, you know, citizen communication tools to pull people in. And when you kind of needle down into each of the domains in the care management domain, you know, there are gap closure tools today that help not just the PCPs close gaps in care, but actually help enable their front office teams, funnel some of that bonus payment to the front office teams to help close gaps in care that are not necessarily only clinical or can be supported in more of a team-based care model. They're going to need far more versatile diagnostic approaches, similar to Dave's model, and you know broader sites of care. So there's a lot of business model change going on in that domain. And the care integration domain, behavioral health screening and delivery capabilities, and a lot of, Dave, to your point, AI-supported and telehealth tools that actually leverage specialty knowledge, whether that's specialty knowledge sitting in, in data somewhere or that's a specialist that they can telehealth to. And in this community connection domain, you know, there are companies out there today that are streamlining social services and not just the connection to, but the interaction with social services. And if you could do that on a scale level, it'd be incredible. So, you know, as these practices, first of all, I actually sort of do love the name, I will say. I, I give it some branding props, making care primary. You know, as these practices move into tracks two and three, they're going to need some a real reshaping of how they manage practices. So there's a lot to be had here in terms of how innovation could really scale throughout, you know, not just the last mile, but like the last block of uh, healthcare out there. So I want to be Pollyanna. I really do. Yeah, that's so get small practices, you know, gets them going with the program and creates a market for innovators, finding the silver linings. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, Pollyanna, I'm about to commit sacrilege, so I hope you'll <laughs> forgive me. Wait, you're you're talking to somebody who stole a lizard and put it in a shoebox, so I think we're, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be okay. Julie had good intentions, just like CMS yeah. has good intentions here, but the lizard's going to bite them, too. Wait and see. <laughs> so... I know that independent primary care physicians are under severe economic pressure. Here's the sacrilege. 
Should we care with better tools, AI, and other caregivers like nurse practitioners and physician assistants practicing at the top of their license? Do we really need PCPs to deliver consistent, high-quality primary care services to everyone in the country? Don't we really need this much broader-based platform to get the job done? Well, I think we have to really discipline ourselves to look at the populations that CMS is talking about. And, you know, this last block I just referred to, I really view that as what it's all about. So I guess maybe I fall more on the head side of my mm-hmm. my argument than not. But, you know, care is going to be delivered how care is going to be delivered, right? And someone's going to have to pull the last block into we're We're not going to be able to privatize it all, or it's all going to be single payer. So, you know, maybe maybe that's where some of this is headed. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, Julie, because when I think privatize, I think more about the payment than I do about the delivery side. I, I think the delivery mechanisms can be private. I mean, Oak Street is obviously a very profitable. Well, they aren't profitable, but a, a very... <laughs> yeah. Watch what you say there. <laughs> it is a very valuable company that focuses on dual eligibles, so old poor people, Medicare and Medicaid, but the funding is public. So I draw a distinction between the funding side and the delivery side, and I really don't think there's any reason that innovative companies couldn't go into low-income urban and rural communities and deliver the kind of primary care that that you're talking about with government payment. Oh, I yeah, I don't disagree with you. But, you know, Mark Smith, who was the CEO of California Healthcare Foundation for Mm -hmm. years, founding CEO, one of his initial thoughts on the community health center environment in California was that it needed some consolidation. It needed efficiencies to run well and not cost the state of California a gajillion dollars. To this day, there has been very little, if any, consolidation. The fierce independence and codependent relationship that the federal government and state governments have with FQHCs, tribal health clinics and center. I mean, just think about the politics of what you're talking about. Like, I love your utopia, but it, <laughs> I don't see how it happens. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, a lot of landmines there. Well, I do think the program's goals are laudable, but 10 and a half years is a long time to wait. You know, I'll be 75 by the time it's over, and I'm sure I'll need a lot of help before then. So, Dave, I don't don't think you will, especially if you're eating candy at a slow pace, but but I'll need some help. So, uh, well, well, thank you, Dave, and thank you, Julie. I'm sure we'll be revisiting this topic well before 2034. Now let's briefly talk about other big healthcare news this week. It wasn't all bad, was it? Julie, what else happened that we should know about? Well, Dave, you must have pretty incredible brain receptors for nutrients because with your two pieces of candy a week or a month or whatever it was... (laughs) There was an article this week in some obscure publication I do not read called Nature Metabolism, but I saw a headline about it that caught my eye that for one of the first studies on brain responses to nutrients and how they are more impaired in people with obesity. And this was a study that basically connected the fact that obesity impacts the way the brain understands the nutrients hitting the body and does not react quickly such that there is a a biological reason why 
that disease is happening. And I think we're, we're seeing more and more and more of this come out. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, we're having massive shortages of Wegovy, such that some of the online providers of that drug have had to pull their marketing. So we're in a really interesting space right now around obesity and diabetes and, you know, everything we're trying to do in that space. Yeah, prevention, prevention, prevention. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what other healthcare news do you want to share? Well, and when prevention doesn't work, drugs to the rescue. I I think that might be where we're headed, which isn't all bad. Well, I'm wondering, Dave, if hospitals are back and not necessarily in a good way, but there were two bits of news that came out this week caught my attention. One was the United Health Group seeing increased utilization, uh, mostly in ambulatory settings. Their stock, along with other payers, plummeted provider stocks were up. UHG is actually down 23% over the last five days. HCA is up 12%. And then the national health expenditure came out with the robust prediction that healthcare will consume $7.1 trillion by 2031 and be 19.7% of the economy, so growing faster than the overall economy. I really don't think that's going to happen for a lot of reasons, but I've been wrong before. So Yeah, I saw that $7 trillion figure, and that's double in less than 10 years, right? So uh, (laughs) that'll be interesting to watch. Thank you. Dave, thank you, and thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.